Hey, humans out there, I need your help. I'm currently planning my second season of Humans Now and Then, and I'd love to know your favorite topics about the future. Are you wondering if someday people might figure out how to live forever? Or maybe the risk that deep fakes carry is keeping you up at night. Maybe you think about a sustainable environment and what farming may look like in the future. Let me know by following Humans Now and Then on Twitter or Instagram. Post your favorite topics about the future and use the hashtags GoShapeTheFuture and Humans Now and Then. Then tag others so that they can contribute their favorite topics. If I choose your topic, I might give you a shout out on the show. Now, get ready to learn more about making new mistakes during my conversation with Travis Wright on this episode of Humans Now and Then. Are you ever worried about making mistakes? Let's talk. In this episode, I speak to Travis Wright, the Director of Growth at Three Gimbals and the author of the book, Making New Mistakes, Leading Through Disruption with a Minimum of Chaos, about the value of learning from your mistakes, the importance of effective leadership, and how to avoid trying to do too much. It's important that you know yourself and that you have, you know, just have a real talk with yourself about, you know, what are my weak spots? You know, where do I always look for help? Where do I need help? And then find somebody to kind of shore that up because you can't be everything to everybody. So ready to learn more about how making new mistakes can help you shape a better future for yourself and others? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Travis Wright, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. I'm really excited about this conversation today. Well, so am I. Travis is a tremendous individual, and he's connected me with other tremendous individuals who have nothing but amazing things to say about Travis. So I just wanted to put that out there and say, you've got quite a great reputation. And yeah, I'm excited about today too. Awesome. Thank you. You bet. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit more about you? Yeah, absolutely. So when I think about, you know, that always seems to be the easiest question, you know, tell me about yourself, you know, who are you? What do you do? And that sort of thing, right? And I have found it in the past to be a little bit difficult to sort of answer that question, because I think back to the Walt Whitman poem, there's a line in there where he says, you know, uh, I may contradict myself, but it's because I am multitudes. And we are a bunch of different things to different people, to our family, to our friends, to our coworkers, and that sort of thing. And and, and I realize what you're getting at. You're obviously more interested in my professional life, and that's what I want to talk to today. But even in that, I think about, well, there's multiple things that I bring to my job besides just my title. So yes, there is my title. I am the um, the director of growth at a company that's called Three Gimbals, and we're a, a services firm. We help out the intelligence community as, as, as our biggest client and um, work with some incredibly bright, talented people there. And I really enjoy the opportunity that I've been given there. That's just my title. That's just what's on my business card, basically. But then I also think about my role, regardless of my title. When I look back through my career, I think about my role and, and what I bring to each of those jobs. And it really, when I look back at it and reflect on it, I'm really a fixer. Um, and I'm really, I like to build coalitions and build networks, as, as you've seen and you brought up a little bit earlier. But if someone's having a problem, you know what? I mean, I have the skills to do it, but I know somebody who has the skills to go in and help solve whatever problem you're up against. And that's what I really like to do and kind of fixing those sorts of things. So that's a little bit of a historical look of, of sort of what I bring. And as I was trying to think about how I like to introduce myself and think about myself, I also said, well, you know, I need to have 
you know, what do I aspire to be? Who do I want to be? Um, and so when I think what I aspire to be is working, currently working on is being what's called an expert generalist. And I came across that term um, uh, maybe just a couple of years ago when I was reading about Charlie Munger, who is Warren Buffett's uh, business partner. So he kind of knows what he's doing, but he's just a voracious reader in a wide variety of different topics. So everything from ancient poetry to the modern business, things that are going on, he keeps uh, up to date on all of those things. And he's able to make these different connections across these different industries to come up with these insights. Then he's able to capitalize in a financial sense, you know, help to make investment decisions and that sort of thing. And so I found that really interesting and because I have this wide variety of interests. And I think we'll talk a little bit later, a little bit about my career where it's you know, it, it's really a little bit all over the place, all the different things that, that I've been able to do and the opportunities I've had. But I'm no Charlie Munger. I mean, he's, he's got this amazing intellect, but I do aspire to be that type of person where, you know, I go in, I get a lot of knowledge about a certain area, I kind of get what I want out of it, feel like it can make a difference. And then I move on. And then as I've done that multiple times throughout my career, now I'm able to make these connections and see these patterns over my career that I'm able to use in the current situations I'm challenging. So probably a much longer explanation of, of who is Travis and, and who I am uh, and a little bit about myself. But yeah, that's sort of how I like to frame the answer to that question. Yeah. And I also love the way you answered that question because you actually got beyond the titles and what your job is and really got into who's Travis. And so I think that sets a great example. So I'm actually really glad you answered the question the way that you did. And it says a lot about you and how thoughtful you are in what does it really mean to be Travis? I want you to know that I appreciate that. Good, good. I'm glad. Yes. So you did bring up one thing too about you aspiring to be a generalist. So I think that is also amazing. One of the things that I have talked to multiple business leaders and folks about is the role of someone who is a generalist, someone who has a varied and diverse background, uh, somebody who brings multiple perspectives to the table, um, but may not have a specialty or a technical you know, specialty in one specific area. There's a lot of debate that I've heard from leaders and organizations about what's the preference, what type of employee are folks looking for? Are we looking for people that have very deep skill, whether that be deep technical skill or other types of skill um, in relation to a specific topic or specific technology? Or do you need people that are more adaptable, right? Adaptable to the different circumstances that might come up or in this rapidly changing environment in which we live. So I'd like you to kind of expand on that generalist piece, like you aspiring to be a generalist. Do you have any insights about that from, I know, the leaders that you've worked with potentially or the organizations you've worked with? Yeah, yeah, I definitely have some thoughts about that. I think back to, um, and you mentioned too, you know, the rapidly changing world that we're in now. Um, I have a friend who has a technology company and we were just having this conversation about the types of people that he hires and that sort of thing. And he's like, look, I'd much rather have someone has a, a certification in a specific language or whatever that he was working on than somebody who has a computer science degree because what they've learned in the computer science degree, it's it's null and void. There's been things that have you know, happened since then um, that they're actually behind the curve by the time they come out of college. So I've also seen in some colleges where they are adapting their curriculum so that it's not, you know, you need, what is, I don't remember what it is, like 120 credits or whatever it is in these uh, certain areas. It's just one size fits all MBA. But there's fewer and fewer core courses uh, that you'll need to take and a lot more of these elective one and two credit programs where you can get the latest and greatest technologies that are out there so that when you leave, you're an asset to your 
employer, you're not having to be retaught just all the theory and that sort of thing that you learned in college. So I think that we're starting to see some of that shift. And now with a lot of this pandemic going on, a lot of people doing some online training and that sort of thing, realizing that you can really get a lot of just-in-time training for whatever the next thing is that's out there. And I think there's a lot of value in that. I find a lot of value in that with this time that I have now, you know, being at home a lot more and being able to take some classes and doing webinars and learning what I need to know has been really helpful. I also want to be careful and make sure I caveat all of this saying that there will always be a need for subject matter experts and technical experts in various areas. You know, we'll definitely need those. But I think what you're alluding to is, is absolutely right. Where it used to be, you know, you would have to have a specific degree and you know, you would be doing the same thing your entire career, you know, to dumb it down a little bit, you know, putting the same rivet in the same hole on the factory floor type of thing, only in a much more technical sense. That is quickly shifting as companies are shifting and they're not around as long um, and they're shifting to the latest technologies. And even when I went to write the book, there's a lot of technology pieces in it. But when I started thinking about, you know, how I wanted to focus this and as the ideas were coming up, it's like, if I wanted to write a book about blockchain or AI or machine learning or RPA, all that stuff, you know, by the time my, my book comes up, things will have changed completely and it would just have a very short shelf life. When I look back again through my career, we've always had to deal with some sort of change or some upending innovation or disruption that comes into a, an industry. And a lot of the, the principles that come through that are a lot of the times the same, regardless of whatever the technology is. So I want to make sure that the books stay green and that those concepts stay green. And so I think going back to your question about the generalists and the and subject matter experts, I think the generalists can see those patterns and say, look, I don't know how to code. I don't know this language, but I see this pattern about how this program or app or offering is similar to something else and how it can be used, I think. And then finding those experts to put those pieces together for them quickly, or even taking a, a six-week course or something like that, if it's going to be a little bit longer standing, that I think those are going to be the ones that are going to be able to adapt to that change. And then I'll end with this quote real quick that I had from, because I think about the pandemic, but I think it's also applicable to this part of the conversation as well as uh, Charles Darwin, who talked about it's not the strongest or the most intelligent that survive. It's those are the most adaptable to change. And I think that's absolutely true in this case, too, when you think about the generalist. Oh, yeah. No, I, I agree with you on that. No way to, that we can shift our thinking is to think about some things that generalists bring that are skills, such as high learning flexibility, an ability to change gears quickly, potentially essential skills such as communication skills, uh, working well with others, understanding and leveraging positive team dynamics. These are skills that are highly valuable in high-functioning teams that have success. So if we think about it from a skills-based perspective, generalists bring a tremendous amount of skills that are usually under-recognized or underutilized. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it, it's really those areas that you that you outlined there. A lot of those, I lump into the, the critical thinking. Whatever problem they can get in there, they can kind of figure it out. They can be innovative and almost in a creative sense, making those connections that someone who's been in the industry or who's been doing the same thing for a long time, they may not be able to make those same sorts of connections. So yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Yes. And I do want to, again, congratulate you for the launch of your book, Making New Mistakes. It's a great book. I was able to read some of it. 
And I think one of my favorite things is some of the chapter titles. Oh, yeah. I think you've got great chapter titles, like People Are Weird. Yeah. So true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's like right. even just things like Dragonfly Wings and Woodpecker Tongues. Wow. That's phenomenal. But it makes you want to read it. You know, I have to say you've got a lot of great analogies and useful stories in there that weave in things that will help organizations kind of get over imperfection and really thinking around adding value. So I, I really enjoyed it. And I know one of the things that we talked about previously was lessons that you had learned from the Amish. Yeah, that's one of my favorite stories in there. And I'm glad you brought that one up because it's almost a carry off from the conversation we were just talking about, getting these ideas from places where you never would expect them. So the story is just quickly is that I was on vacation. My wife, uh, her family lives in Ohio and there's a large Amish population around there. And so, you know, we take the kids out there, we go out and see to Amish country and see the crafts and the food and that sort of thing. And as we're driving through, you know, you see the, the iconic horse-drawn buggies and the, the way that they're dressed and all that sort of thing. And uh, it just occurred to me, as like, well, why did they pick 1870 or something like that to stop? You know, decided, all right, everything past this point is bad. And, and I just kind of pondered it for a little bit. And we, we came back off of vacation. Uh, I did a little bit of research, went down some, some rabbit holes. And, you know, much like with a lot of things where you, uh, you know, you may ask a silly question and then you realize, well, there's actually some reasons behind why these things are dumb. I went and did a little bit of research and I found out that it's not that they picked that time to stop. It's that the, the Amish really have the sense of community and that that's the most important thing. That's their mission is about community and what impacts that community. So if you have ever seen on, I encourage you to go to YouTube and look at an Amish barn raising and just see the way that they're able to put this enormous barn together in in a day and of course think about the, the preparation that's for that but then to seeing this army of men going out there and picking this thing up and moving it and it's just incredible how quickly it happens but that's what they're about is that community and helping each other out so since that is their focus anything that impacts or uh, in any way that community or that sense of community they want to tightly scrutinize and so what they'll do is they will actually look at new technologies and new ways of doing work and business and that sort of thing. And they'll they'll have a board, and that's my word, I don't know what the real word is, but they'll have some sort of board that will kind of test out this new technology and really find out how will it impact the community. So the only two things that I could find that are strictly forbidden are televisions and cars. And everything else is sort of open to free game, you know, they'll, they'll or fair game, they'll kind of take a look at it, see the impact, and then they'll move on. So if you think about if Rebecca, you and I are our neighbors and uh, you know, I run out of eggs, if I have a car, I can jump into my car, I can go to the store, buy my eggs, come home. I don't have to talk to a soul to do that. And that's not what the Amish um, because there's no sense of community in that. If maintaining their sense of community, if I go out and I'm, I'm out of eggs, I come over and I say, hey, Rebecca, I'm out of eggs. Maybe I could trade you some butter for my eggs or milk or whatever. And then we have a conversation about how you're doing, how I'm doing, you know, things that are going on and maintaining that sense of community. I like, I know you as opposed to, you know, just somebody lives in a house next to me. So when I thought about all of that, the word that came up for me was intention, right? They're very intentional about the technologies that they bring into their communities. And it made me think, it made me reflect, you know, I'm a, I mean, you should see my phone. It's a, it's a hot mess with all the different apps I have. Like, oh, here's another productivity app. I'm going to download this. It'll work this time. I know. It will, <laughs> right. right? Um, as this, it, instead of having a problem to solve and so like, oh, this is how I think and how I work. This is the best way that I should take notes. And of course, it's just a silly app. Right. But, you know, I think that also applies to, to leaders when you're thinking about the technology and saying, 
hey, everybody else has blockchain, you know, in my industry. So I better go and get blockchain without thinking about like, just because they have doesn't necessarily you mean you need to have it. But thinking about like, how, how am I different from those other competitors? And how might this, this technology either progress towards my goals and, and, and what I'm trying to accomplish in the world? So I just thought it was a really fascinating lesson from a place you wouldn't expect, right? Where it's, you know, the Amish really changed management, you know, they didn't live in the same way for, you know, 100 years, 150 years. How, you know, how are they going to teach me anything? And it just opened my eyes to, yeah, you know what, there's actually, there's something there. If you kind of think hard enough and you do a little bit of, of research, you can make some of those connections. Yeah, I think that really is a great story in relation to the value of human connection and recognizing the importance of human connection. And if you think about the fact that there was some foresight on the part of the Amish to understand where that technology could take them and were resistant to it because of that. And we kind of out in the world, as you mentioned, like all of us have the messy iPhone situation, by the way. (laughs) I have it too. I've done the same thing. This is going to be the app that's going to solve my disorganization. But I still end up with post-it notes all over my (laughs) desk. (laughs) Yeah, but it really does speak to that thing you brought up too around the value of different solutions that we evaluate or that we invest in and being cautious not to jump too quickly into shiny objects or um, overly optimistic projections about what different technologies could do for us, either for our organizations or for us as people. And really applying some critical thinking about what are the potential outcomes in relation to this solution that I'm considering, both positive and negative, and then make a balanced decision on what's the value add for me, or what's the value add for my organization, or, or what's really the benefit for me to go this direction. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think it's and it's so easy too, right? That's a, again, I'll make sure that there's there's really no no judgment on any of this because no. we're we're all there, you know, we're all busy, and especially when you're making those decisions on to to adding some sort of new platform or new technology to your organization. I mean, especially the leaders I work with and leaders everywhere are really they're so busy, even under normal circumstances. Forget the pandemic stuff going on, right? But how can you add into the bandwidth of, all right, now, you know, I've been using X system and now I need to shift to, to Y system and what's that going to look like? And yeah, it can be overwhelming. So yeah, I want to make sure I give some grace there as well, that this is a, just like, oh, quick quick and easy answer, right? <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's a lot to it for sure. Oh, but, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I'm glad I'm glad you said that because that's true. And I don't mean to be overly critical anyway, but I think that's one of those things that we have to remind ourselves of because, you know, as a part of our human nature, we do get excited about things. We do want to feel like we're keeping up with other organizations or just the pace of business. There's some level of pressure around those types of decisions on what types of technology or things that we're investing in to make sure that we're staying relevant. Um, but it's also sometimes hard to to kind of take a step back and apply some critical thinking to that. So certainly we're all going to make mistakes, which is, you know, a big part of your book, right? Is yeah, that you're yeah. going to make mistakes and you're going to make decisions that maybe you shouldn't have made. but that shouldn't stop you from learning from those decisions and not, you know, not beating yourself up over those decisions, but rather learning from that and moving forward. Absolutely. And I think that's the, uh, that was a big turning point for me uh, very early in my career. And it's one of the stories that I share too. It was a, um, you know, I was in the army, I was a helicopter pilot and I was teaching this class. Uh, I was only, I guess I was probably 20 at the time. And so I'm teaching this class and some of these pilots been in the army longer than I'd been alive. And as a junior guy, I'm supposed to go in there and teach this class. And, you know, I was really worried about it. I was kind of stressing about it because like, how's this going to go? I don't know a lot of these people, what's going to happen, that sort of thing. And 
I was fortunate that I had a very wise uh, instructor who initially his comment to me was, you know, when I said, look, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to mess this up. And he says like, yeah, you probably will. I'm like, oh, great. Thanks. That, that's helpful. <laughs> you know, but the real wisdom came right after that when he said, look, you know, you're human. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to screw something up in this class. That's fine. However, you know, you've got people who've given this class before. You've got the training materials. You can ask questions beforehand. So make your own mistakes, make you know new mistakes. And that's sort of where the title of the book came from. But the really powerful piece of that for me was I'm human. I'm going to screw up. There's no sense in striving for this uh, perfection or anything like that. And now the, the terms are like failing fast and that kind of stuff. But I think there's some power in, in naming that. Like, I'm going to screw something up. I'm not going to make the right decision. I'm going to have every right intention. I'm going to you know want, obviously, to do the right thing. I'm going to get the right information and all that stuff. But even with all of that, I'm still going to screw something up. I'm still going to miss out on something. And for me, anyway, there's some power in that. It's like, even with my best intentions, I'm going to screw something up. And really, that's where you're learning happens. It's not when things go great and things go perfect and things go exactly according to your plan. There's some ego involved in that, I think. It's like, oh yeah, look, I I planned all this. It it all worked out. There's some saying that I'll sort of butcher, but we overestimate what, uh, we give ourselves too much credit for what just happened by chance. So a lot of times when things go perfect, right? You know, that there's a a lot of chance and luck that's involved there. We don't want to see that. We want to take credit for that. But then, and then we're too hard on ourselves when uh, when things go wrong, and there's some some luck and some things like that as well. So that's that's another uh, important thing to think about. I was trying to remember the name of the horse, but this uh, this racehorse, the Kentucky Derby, beat the the record, the, the two minute uh, was it mile and a quarter, whatever it is at the at the Kentucky Derby. It had the had the world record for under two minutes. Big Sham is the name of the horse, but you've never heard of Sham because Sham came in second. Secretariat, you know, the most famous racehorse around and was only, you know, fractions of a second behind Secretariat. And that's what happens to us, right? We do everything where, you know, we've got a world record pace and, and we're, we're headed in, but sometimes there's somebody else who just comes swooping by or, you know, something happens. So anyway, yeah, that's, that's sort of my thoughts on, on that. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of pressure that people feel in relation to, I mean, probably their career in general. And, you know, I thought of also, let's say, younger folks, and I, I always age myself when I say things like that, <laughs> but I really talk about Gen Z and how they've been raised on social media. And I have been very interested in understanding their perspective on that journey, growing up on social media, getting this picture of what success looks like based on some of that engagement. And often you have a lot of folks that put a lot of pressure on themselves to try to achieve that level of what they consider to be success, which is usually monetary success or or some level of fame, followers, and so forth. I mean, not always, but it's interesting to kind of explore that. Uh, what is success? Yeah. Because when you venture into the business world or, you know, you get to be a little bit older, like me, <laughs> I guess, or like whatever. <laughs> but um you have to really challenge yourself about what success looks like and what's important. And going back to what you were saying before, almost being a little existential about who are you and what are you, what's your meaning of or purpose in life and what are you trying to achieve and making sure we don't fall into that trap of being sham, coming in second place, doing amazing work, uh, but feeling like it wasn't enough. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And and so I'm with you too. I, I mentor some both senior leaders who are transitioning from the military and then 
very junior uh, folks on my team and, and other people that I've mentored as well. And it's keeping grounded and it, it sort of worked. This is a concept I always share with them that, that works for me. And I think it would a- apply to what you're talking about, that whole grounded piece and what's real and what's not. Because that same bubble that you're talking about where, where Gen Z is, they're getting this this adulations are getting likes and comments and that sort of thing. It, it feels good. Well, that's the same as what leaders of large organizations are, are feeling too, right? Everybody is, you know, wants to please the boss. They want to, I'm using air quotes, you know, everybody's selling to the boss. So I don't mean just like a vendor trying to sell, you know, some sort of you know app or whatever, uh, or system. I really mean like even their teams are trying to sell like this idea so they can get a promotion or get some clout or their peers are trying to, you know, get to partner with the the leader to do different things. And so that's not going to go away. That same situation you talk about with Gen Z applies even to the Fortune 500 CEOs um, that they're coming up with. So uh, when I mentor folks and I talk to them about that and staying grounded and how to do that, I talk about having an informal board of advisors. And these are people that you can that you can rely on, that you can count on, that are are going to keep you humble in a lot of ways, but they're going to keep you from making some, some of these mistakes and from uh, making these errors and getting a little bit too full of yourself. And they don't need to be named. You don't need to say like, Rebecca, you're on my informal board of advisors. You have meetings every Thursday, right? That, that's not what I'm talking about. Like they, it doesn't even have to be named. It's just people that are, you keep these types of people in your orbit. So I, I give an example. Um, so first of all, it's actually knowing your blind spots or your weaknesses and shoring those up. So these are some of the, the categories that I use. There could be others. I'm sure there are. There's more. And whether these all apply to you or not, that's fine. But just to give you a, an idea of the, of the framework. So the first one, and there's just a couple of them here, but one is a skeptic. And this is the person who come up with a, a, a good idea. You go up there and like, and I have this friend who I do this with, and I'll, I'll be laying out this idea to her. And I can see, like I've known her for a long time. And just as I'm laying it all out, I can just see, you know, her eyes glaze over and she, you know, the wheels are turning. Before I'm even done with my idea, she has like a five point plan of why it will, will never work. And um, that's important. And it's not because like she doesn't like me. I'm pretty sure she likes me, but uh, it's because, you know, she's, that's just the way her mind thinks. She wants to look for those ideas. The way that I use her is that I'll run those ideas by her and I'll find out you know, what her comments are back to me. They're always insightful. And I'll be like, ah, like either I need to look at that or that's what my detractors are going to say when I present this idea somewhere. So, oh, I need to talk more about that or I need to shape my conversation this way. Or it's just a crap idea, right? <laughs> that, that could be an answer too. But I know when she lights up and she looks at me and she goes, huh, then I know, all right, I'm on to something, right? That's a, a vote of confidence in that. So I think that's someone that's important to have. So another one is an optimist. And this is somebody who like, it needs to be authentic. All these relationships need to be authentic. Someone who cares about you and, and supports you because you're going to have crappy days, right? Um, and someone's like... You know, I have a friend who I call um, whenever I have a kind of a crappy day and he's always supportive of me. And he's like, ah, oh, you're doing great things. But remember, you did this and you did that. And, you know, your, your heart's in the right place. Not only does it feel good, but, you know, it's affirming and that sort of thing. But they're also a good person to brainstorm with. So I'll take that same idea that I talked to, you know, about with my skeptic friend. And I'll talk to with my optimist friend and I'll say, hey, what about this? And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, they're the yes and person. Like, yeah, you could do that. And then you could do this other thing. And why don't you add this on there? And it's like kind of blows this whole idea out. And you're like, oh, I've never thought about that. Kind of bouncing those ideas off of them. So they're really excellent to have. The third one is a, a technical expert. So this could be somebody that's in your industry or not. 
uh, somebody that sort of has that engineering kind of brain kind of thinking and it's kind of up on all the latest tech trends and, and things like that. I had a friend many, many years ago when I was in the army and he would read uh, the technical manuals like for fun on the weekends. I'm like, dude, there's something wrong with you. But, uh, but he would know like what different pieces of equipment. He's like, oh, you know what? We could actually make this work over here. I was like, oh, like nobody else would have known that except him because he had that knowledge. You want to have somebody that you can kind of bounce those ideas off of. So if this notional idea that I'm talking about, like if when I run it past my technical friend, he's like, eh, you know, there's no framework that would make that happen. You'd have to have this piece and talking to this piece would take this language, you know, things that I don't understand. Again, these are all my kind of my weak spots. So, um, but somebody that could kind of round that out for me and help me with that, that thinking. Then the last one is the pragmatist. So this is the person who's like, yeah, that, you know, Again, with my my notional widget here, it's like, yeah, that's a good idea. It would probably work. You've thought out all the kinks and bugs, but you're never going to get a, a billion dollar budget to, to make that happen, right? <laughs> you, you need to, what, what can you do? How can you break that down and bring it down to earth? So when I think about, back to what you're talking about with the, the Gen Z crowd and with these Fortune 500 CEOs, having these people that they're connected to you, but they're not necessarily work for you. Like they have no skin in the game other than they care about you. And we'll give you this, this advice. That's important people to have around you as you're going through, you know, a big decision, whether that's a career decision, making a decision on college, um, where to go, what major to go through, to making a, you know, multi-million dollar buy on a, a Salesforce application for your, you know, huge company or something like that. It's important to have those people that you can kind of run this, run this by to get that. Uh, and these aren't everybody's categories. These are just four of, of several that I use. But again, I just want to go back and just restate, it's important that you know yourself and that you have, you know, just have a real talk with yourself about, you know, what are my weak spots? You know, where do I always look for help? Where do I need help? And then find somebody to kind of shore that up because you can't be everything to everybody. So sort of figure that out. So hopefully that's helpful, not only through your you know, making decisions for a, a business, but also through your professional career on some of the decisions you might make. And, and hopefully that you'll, you know, they'll up your game and help you to make the right decision. Yes. And I really love the fact you brought up the importance of knowing yourself. And to kind of take that a step further, if you know what your shortcomings are, as well as your strengths, of course, focus on your strengths. But if you understand your shortcomings, what's important is not trying to continually try to overcome them, but rather find ways to either supplement those shortcomings by the strengths of other people around you. And then even maybe more important, forgive yourself for not being perfect. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I could not agree with that more. Um, both of those points, I, I think, are critically important because you can't be all things to all people and you can't do it all, you know, almost outsource some of that stuff that you're not good at. That's OK. Nobody expects you to be perfect at everything or be strong in everything. I actually respect people who, who realize their shortcomings. Uh, that's not me. I'm not your guy for that or I'm not your girl for that. Like that, you, need, you need to find somebody else to to do that. Um, I have much more respect for people like that than people like, oh, yeah, I can do that. And they keep saying yes to things. And eventually they, they let you down. Um, and that's just setting yourself up for failure. So, yeah, I could not agree more. Rebecca. Yeah, I think that's definitely an easy trap to fall into. And I think sometimes you have people that really are on overdrive on helping other people. And so sometimes intentions are really good, but overcommit. It's really important that if you end up in that circumstance to be very honest about your situation with the people you've made commitments to, to let them know, look, I made a mistake. And maybe that's another thing that's really important about the whole concept of being okay with making mistakes is also being able or having the ability to take accountability for those mistakes 
and not lose your self-confidence in the process. Absolutely. So when I was in the, the consulting world, what we'd say to that dilemma that you're talking about, you're saying yes to everything. It's like, say no to protect your yes. And the idea behind that is that, like I said at the beginning, I'm a fixer. I want to, I'm a people pleaser. I want to figure out a way that I can help somehow and I make that happen. I have to check myself on that and say, you know, I can't be everything to everybody. And, you know, I'm going to have to say no to some things. But when people, and people will be understanding of that, people that know me will know that when I say yes to something, that I'm all in, right? You know, I'll say no to nine things, but the one thing I say yes to is something that I'm going to be all in on and they've got 100% of me on me and, and it will get done as opposed to you know, saying yes to everything and you know none of it gets done or it all gets half started and that sort of thing. So I think that's a really important concept to, you know, part of it's for me, right? This, I'm preaching to myself here a little bit, but it's, um, I think it's an important concept to understand how important that is to, to do that because what you'll do as well is you'll build this social capital so that when you do mess up, People are like, hey, his heart was in the right place. I know he's committed to this. You know, I know that th- these were some of the circumstances. You know, s- stuff just happens sometimes. People are just more understanding of that as opposed to, well, yeah, he's got too much going on. Why is he, you know, taking all this on? Of course, one of those things is going to fall off and that sort of thing, or he's going to miss something or, or things like that. So um, I think that's really important that people are going to be forgiving of you more than you realize, especially when, you, yeah, when you're upfront and honest with them, as, as you said. Yeah, I think that is a great way to build trust. And I, I think that's also a great way to demonstrate accountability and understand the importance of being vulnerable enough to admitting that you've made a mistake or you've overcommitted or, you know, something's going on in your life, whatever it might be, because people are, you know, overwhelmingly forgiving, I found. I mean, there are some exceptions, of course, to that. Sure. Uh, but in general, people people really get it because other people are flawed just like us. I mean, I can raise my hand and say, I'm flawed too. I've made the exact mistakes that you're talking about. And I've done my best to kind of turn around and and not fall into the trap of overcommitting because my intentions might be good, but also taking the accountability to say, you know what, I've made a mistake here. I've had an error in judgment or I didn't have the right priorities. But, you know, if we're honest about that, we can build trust with one another, build connections. And then also, I think, give other people sort of de facto permission to admit when they've made mistakes too. Yeah, I, yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right about that. And I think one of the biggest lessons I learned as a leader, I actually learned early in my career uh, when I was learning to fly. And in whatever aircraft you're learning to fly, there, there's two sets of flight controls in there. And, they, and they're both together, right? So they, you know, when it turns left, they, they both turn left, that sort of thing. And the way that you're taught to fly is that, you know, you'll talk about it in the classroom, they'll explain the maneuvers and, and that sort of thing. But when you're actually out in there flying, the instructor will show you one and then you'll do one, you'll, you'll screw it up. He'll tell you how bad you screwed it up. And then you'll, you'll practice it over and over. And then eventually he'll have to show you again, that sort of thing. But when you're just starting out, Again, the instructor will show you a maneuver and then say, all right, now it's your turn. You come and try it. I had uh, some instructors, what they'll do is they'll be so, so much control and, and really in business terms, they're, they're micromanaging. They've got such a tight connection or hold on the controls that there were times when I was flying, it's like, I'm not making any of those movements. It's the the instructor doing it uh, because I'm trying to fight against him. I could feel him on, on the controls making the inputs. I didn't learn anything from them. Um, I didn't get any confidence from them because I'm like, well, I really didn't even do that, whatever that was. They'll tell me how good I did. Well, it was really them doing it. And then there are other times where I really learned a lot was from instructors who would, uh, they'd show me to do it. I would do it a couple of times. And then they would sit back and they would 
cross their arms and put them on the on their chest and then i'd be like well, man I, I better not screw this up or you know <laughs> something bad is gonna happen so but i would learn it's like oh okay now that wasn't pretty it wasn't perfect but you know what i did it at least right and so i've tried to adopt that sort of mentality as, as a leader of it's not not absenteeism it's hands-off it's it's challenging like people and i think a lot of people who come up through either a technical field or stay in one company or something like that, a little bit more difficulty in making this transition from being a, you know, an individual contributor, you know, writing code or or whatever it is, to then managing people who code to, you know, leading teams that code or create programs and that sort of thing. Because they were in that job before, right? They know how that code is supposed to be written or they know how that report is supposed to be done. And they really have a difficult time of kind of letting that go. And then I think that's a lot of times we see leaders stagnate. And they're really not leaders because they're more managers. They're managing the process and nobody wants to get behind them. So when I talk to first-time managers, I talk to them about that. You know, it's making that shift. You have to let some stuff go. Things aren't going to be done exactly the way that you wanted it done. But if it's nobody's going to get hurt, it's not going to violate policy or, or things like that, then it's okay, right? It's a learning opportunity for someone else. And um, I, I think it ties back to something you said a little bit earlier, where it's having that grace for them, but then it's also being comfortable enough in your own abilities uh, to be able to let loose of the controls a little bit and letting someone else kind of um, get that confidence. And then the other thing I talk to leaders about too is, you know, who's your replacement? You know, if you're doing this all the time and everyone's relying on you, you know, to complete this report or this thing and you're the linchpin, you know, what happens if you get hit by the proverbial bus or what happens when you retire or move on? You're doing the organization a disservice by doing that. So I think all those things are sort of tied together into that concept. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know I've had that conversation with um, other folks as well around the importance of understanding the difference between being talented at a specific skill or task or having a specific area of knowledge or being a, a subject matter expert in an area versus having uh, the skills that are necessary to be a successful leader, because that's a tremendously different thing. Absolutely. And unfortunately, in a lot of larger, you know, bureaucratic organizations, it's the military is like that too, right? It's just kind of time on the rock that you have how long you've been in and the assignments you've had and that sort of thing. That factors into it, but it's, hey, you've been in this long, well, it's time to get promoted. Yeah, and, and figuring out how to recognize that talent. And we're not good at it as humans, and we need some help on that because there's people are weird <laughs> type of thing where we we have favorites, even though we're not supposed to. You know, people that are easier to get along with. You know, there's always the heir apparent sort of uh, concept and, and all those sorts of things to figure those things out. That I remember, uh, you know, I've been out of flight school for a little while, and I would see some guys that were I would be in different units and that sort of thing, and I'd see a guy to be like man, how did you make it through flight school? Like, you know, I, we went to the same flight school, but I don't know how you made it because the way you do things is just crazy. So th- there's some of that out there as well. But then I actually extrapolated that too. It's like, well, if I'm thinking about that, about other pilots, there's probably doctors out there who are like, man, how'd you make it through <laughs> through medical school, right? And hopefully I'm getting a good doctor. But, but anyway, it's just really thinking about, it's difficult. That's the part of leadership, finding those good leaders who have the technical skills, have the ability to lead, or at least have the trainability to accept training to, to be able to lead organizations and giving them the right tools so, so that they can make the right decisions and eventually be good leaders. Yes. And I think what's really interesting is the more I hear you speak about, you know, all these different aspects of leadership, um, you bring in a lot of great insights from your past or previous roles you had. So in relation to start with your aviation career, so started as a helicopter pilot, became an airline pilot, 
uh, eventually entered the military before your current role. So at each stage of your career, what was your most valuable learning that you carried forward to create your current Travis? Yeah, so it's a great question because there's been a lot. And things happen sort of at the right time. As I look back now, after oh, to my career, I'm like, I can sort of see, oh, this happened here and that enabled this and that sort of thing. And, and the way I sort of describe it is you know, I had a plan. I didn't have a script for a lot of this. I was very fortunate when I was five years old. I knew I wanted to be a pilot. And um, so I kind of geared my whole school years towards that. I was fortunate enough. I got accepted to the Army's flight school and was a pilot. I graduated flight school when I was 19 and was in my first Army unit and, and sort of doing all of that. And I had goals. But after about 10 years, I said, all right, I think I did everything I wanted to do. And um, so, well, let me, I still kind of like flying. Let me try something else. And so I, I left the Army and went and was a, a, an airline pilot. And for those that don't know, the um, first year airline pilot pay is, is awful. I made $17,000 my first year year <laughs> um, uh, there doing that. And uh, so I joined the National Guard part-time. So I was actually doing two jobs, right, um, to kind of make ends meet. And then, so then after that, I got married, I had kids, I was gone all the time. I said, Hey, let's move to DC. And I took a staff job here in DC for the military and was able to parlay that into, you know, as a program manager and I ran some large programs. And then my last job was uh, in the drug policy office. And then I said, you know what, I'm going to try something else. I want to try consulting and see what that's like. And was able to have a good career in that. But along the way, I had a lot of mentors who and leaders who showed up like at the right time and kind of gave me the right boost when I needed it, kick in the pants when it, when I needed that as well. And I guess I'll just share a couple real quick. One was at a commander. His name was Joe Reed, and he was an amazing commander. But when he first came on, he'd only been on for a couple of weeks, I think. He hadn't been our commander for very long. And I was trying to try out for this elite unit, and I was telling him about it. And he, one of the things I needed to do was to plan a, a larger mission, which I hadn't done before. And so he said, hey, we've got this field exercise coming up. Why don't you plan it? And you know, I'll be with you and it'll give you that experience. I'm like, man, that's great. What that really meant, though, is that you know, this was Joe's first project, if you want to call it that, in front of his boss. And he gave that to me to do. Now, he was with me, of course, and guided me through it. You know, he still owned it uh, and all that. But instead of what Joe could have said, it's like, hey, you, know, you just follow me and then I'll kind of include you in some meetings or, and things like that. He really gave me the opportunity to, to shine there. That was really, really important for my career and for my leadership style in that um, you're giving that recognition, even when you don't think people are ready, because I, I certainly wasn't, but uh, just having that opportunity to do that, I really learned a lot from that. And then later on, when I was working uh, here in DC as a, uh, just as a staff officer, I had this opportunity. I had created this model on the way that our program was giving out funds and it needed to be approved by our four-star general. And I went in, um, I, you know, I was talking to my boss and like, hey, this is what we need to do. And there's a whole huge process between you know lowly Travis and this four-star general that I had to go through. There's a legal and finance and other generals that had to be briefed and that sort of thing. It's a lengthy sort of process for this, what culminates in a, in a 10 minute meeting that goes pretty quick. But um, as I was going through all of that, it was one of those things where I said, I, I got it. I, you know, I know what I'm doing. You know, I've, I've done it once before. I met this general before, so it wasn't a huge deal. And long story short, I get into the room and I did the classic knowledge worker blunder of I didn't maintain version control. And what the general got wasn't 
what he was supposed to get. And he did notice it. And, you know, he didn't even look at me. He looked at my boss and said, hey, this is wrong. And I was like, oh, man. So in those cases, that goes back to what we were talking about before, about having that social capital. My boss, yeah, was he upset? Of course, right? You know, he didn't want to look like a, an idiot in front of the general either. But, but he also knew that, that we had done this before and that, you know, it was just one of those things that, that happened. And then I learned a lot from that, too, about making sure I include people on things, people who aren't part of the program to review to, to the point to where today when I have a, an email that goes out to a client or out to the entire company, I guess somebody else to look at it and say, hey, is this clear? Is this is what I'm trying to say. Is that coming across? What am I missing? And that sort of thing. So this is just like you know, two of, of many examples of some significant learning points and turning points that have really modeled and shaped my leadership journey and the type of leader that I aspire to be. Yeah, that's powerful. I mean, I think that's been an amazing journey that you've had. And by the way, I appreciate your service in the military. And I really think it's amazing how much that has influenced, I think, how humble you are about your background, but also how mindful you are about the impact of effective leadership on people in organizations that I think maybe even just out in the world. Because I think that you've probably seen a lot of effective leaders, not even just driving powerful outcomes, but also inspiring people to want to do more. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. Um, I, I've been yeah really fortunate to work with some some really amazing leaders who, like I said before, have really been gracious with their time and their interest in me, and uh, and I've just tried to pay it forward. You know, people have given me uh, opportunities when I probably didn't deserve them, and you know, it, it's made me who I am today. And what I said before is that I have this plan, I have this script. You know, if you'd asked you know, 20 year old Travis what he'd be doing at this point, I'd say, well, I'd be flying something. You know, I'd be in a cockpit somewhere. And uh, it's been years since I've flown, you know, and it's just this totally different career path that, I, that I've taken and had some incredible opportunities uh, that I'm extremely grateful for. Yeah, I can definitely say this is not what 20-year-old Rebecca envisioned for herself either. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you think about the interesting journeys that we have. Yeah, I just like, what was that thing that just happened with life and how did I get to this place? But I also, even though through ups and downs and, and different experiences that I've had, some good, some bad, I feel like the lessons that we carry forward are also the most valuable assets that we have as people. So I don't regret, you know, sometimes I, maybe I wish some things were less painful, <laughs> but, you know, we all go through a little bit of pain and I, and sometimes having pain is actually, is actually a good thing because it does help give us a lot of better perspective uh, for the ups and downs in life, but also helps us really appreciate the good, the good moments in life as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, um, and then taking those experiences and, and sharing them with others so that they can learn from it and you can pay it forward to them. And, you know, just really identifying with those people around you and the people that you work with and that sort of thing so that they can kind of say, like, oh, you think you messed up? Well, let me tell you a story. You know, hold on. <laughs> this is this is how Travis screwed up or this is how Rebecca screwed up, right? Hold my beer. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And then they don't, you know, it gives you a great learning point. So I, I totally agree with you. I think, yeah, it sucks going through it, those, those pain points, but 
but you forget, right? I mean, it doesn't stick with you as long as you think it will. And uh, yeah, so if you can use that, you know, any pain that you might still feel and embarrassment, you can just kind of turn that into like, hey, this is going to be helpful for someone else. So, um, and, and doing things like this podcast where you can share some of those w- with people, I think is, is a great way for you to do that as well. Yes. Yeah. And and I appreciate you having this great conversation with me today. And I have a couple questions for you about the future. Sure. So what is something that makes you optimistic about the future? Oh man. You know, it's it, even in the in the midst of this pandemic that we're in, I think we were remiss not to talk about that a little bit. It's it's seeing the the adaptability that we talked about a little bit. It's seeing a lot of things that we took for granted. And, and again, I'll, I'll sort of butcher this a little bit, but I think it was on LinkedIn or maybe somebody put it on a Twitter post or something like that. And it's just some of the, the ways that they um, noted what's going on. You know, we're spending more time with those that, that we love. You know, we're spending more time with nature, going outside, uh, those sorts of things. The, the commuting, you know, I live in DC. So the commuting and not doing that is, has been a big shift. And, and I want to make sure that I also recognize like that's not everyone's experience. There's a lot of people that are, they're hurting a lot um, right now and, you know, uh, without jobs and, you know, certainly people who are, who are home too, who aren't in a good environment. And there's certainly some things that are going on there. I'll make sure that I, I recognize that as well. But what gives me hope in all of that is like, Hey, maybe when I think about work life is that, you know, maybe they're maybe hopefully uh, coming out of this is that organizations are realizing, huh, maybe we don't need, you know, people in the office every day. Maybe we can give a little bit of that true work-life balance where um, if it's not full-time from home, maybe there's a couple more days from home that people could work if that's sort of what they choose. The way that we're also appreciating those that are around us, uh, you know, when things like this happen, I remember another time that was similar to this was 9-11. And thinking about trying to call, you know, everybody, making sure people are okay and, you know, telling them that you love them and, and those sorts of things and appreciating them. It really sucks that, you know, we have to have something like this to make us realize that because we get caught up in that business of life. But just realizing that that's available, I guess, is, is sort of my point that, that that's there and we need to be more intentional about being grateful for those around us and treasuring those moments. So, even through all of this, I think that's what sort of gives me optimism and, and hope. Yes. Yeah, I agree with you. So on the flip side of that, is there anything that concerns you about the future? Oh, man. So I have my children. Uh, they don't, they're not the ones that concern me, but their futures. <laughs> and maybe this is just like every parent probably thinks this too. It's like, you know, what is life for them going to be like? They're 13 and 15. So as they start to enter you know, the workforce in the next few years, and as they work on their careers, like, what is that going to be like for them? I guess that's that's a concern. I don't know if it's a worry as much as it's a concern because I think they'll figure it out. Yeah, maybe it's just like a, a dad concern, right? Like, oh, I hope they find a, a good job. I hope they find, you know, a, a good mate to settle down and don't get in trouble and, and all those sorts of things that a, that a worried parent uh, goes through. That's probably what's closest to me. And that's probably because I'm around them a lot right now, which is great. But uh, yeah, that's probably my biggest... I don't, no, that falls in a worry category, but maybe concern, um, I would say. Yeah, I think that is definitely common. And and thinking about that, for, for me personally, I can speak as a parent as well. This is one reason why I started exploring more about the future or having interest in kind of what our future might look like is because 
yeah, concern for the future that my children may experience, making sure that we're really thinking about, you know, our experience as people uh, in the future and, and what we all can do to help shape that future. Yeah, I, I agree 100%, 100%. So I have to say, I have great optimism that you will shape a lot of people's minds and hearts towards being able to build a better future, being more forgiving of themselves and the mistakes they make allowing them the courage to learn from those mistakes and carry them forward and make a difference. So thank you for the work that you do. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to be here. And uh, thank you for your kind comments. I really do appreciate them. You bet. So this is Travis Wright. His book is Making New Mistakes. Thanks again, Travis, for joining me today. Thanks, Rebecca. From flight school and presenting to generals to consulting large organizations, Travis has had a fascinating career. He is thoughtful of the impact others have had on him and the impact he has on others. His candor about making mistakes and learning from them is important, as mistakes are an important part of our learning and growth in life. I have a confession to make. While editing this episode, I reflected on some recent mistakes of my own. As this year's events have taken a toll, I have not done enough to take care of myself. I have avoided making some tough decisions on what I needed to adjust in my life and ended up overcommitted and run down. This has impacted my mood, my health, and those around me. While my intentions were good, my expectations of what I could achieve were not realistic, and I did not ask for the right kind of help. I commit to changing that, starting today. You don't have to share your mistakes as publicly as I have. However, I hope you reflect on your mistakes, forgive yourself, and carry your learnings forward to help shape a better future. You have the ability to lead from exactly where you are, and you have the ability to do amazing things. So, go on. Go help shape the future. You can find Travis Wright on LinkedIn, and you can find his book, Making New Mistakes, Leading Through Disruption with a Minimum of Chaos, on Amazon. Are you looking for voiceover talent for your podcast, commercial, or other needs? Reach out to Rebecca by emailing contact at humansnowandthen.com. I am Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Music by Ryan Sullivan, Rebecca Scott, and Victoria Scott. Credits and resources from this episode can be found in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>